Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 12, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In our struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Please pray with me. Our Father, as we come to this great passage this morning, we just pray your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power. And I want to pray, Father, in particular for those here who are undergoing various kinds of suffering this morning. Lord, that you would minister in a special way to them through the power of your word in this wonderful passage about your loving, fatherly discipline. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. One year during my undergraduate college experience, I was going through a very difficult and ongoing Situation. I'll spare you the details, but it was one of those times of deep discouragement. Perhaps you've experienced something like that in your life. Uh, maybe even right now you're experiencing something like that, where you feel almost drowning in hopelessness and things sort of go dark. I was in a situation, much of it, to be honest, was self-inflicted, the, the result of poor decisions on my part. But some of it was just unjust treatment from others. And everywhere I looked, there did not seem to be any sign of hope. Maybe you've had those moments of desperation, and and that's what it was for me. I was definitely a believer, uh, but a very immature one. I did not know the Bible very well. And there came a moment, emotionally and mentally, where everything was sort of caving in, and I needed to find some place to be alone and cry out to the Lord. And there was a prayer chapel on campus where I had never been before, but I knew where it was because I remembered it from the tour of the campus. So I went in there and and brought my Bible, and I'm not saying that there was an audible voice or anything like that, and I cannot really explain it to be honest, but I somehow knew that I needed to go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. I didn't know what that verse was. I didn't even know if there were 12 chapters in Hebrews, and I'm not prescribing a method of Bible study, believe me, by any means. 
But at that point in my life and immaturity, the Lord saw fit to graciously condescend to my weakness and lack of understanding. And as I turned to that passage, I prayed to the Lord, this is your word. You know that I'm suffering. I desperately need to hear from you. And by his grace and providence, this was the very passage that I read. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and, or faint-hearted. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I close my Bible and wept with comfort. This was exactly the truth that I needed in that moment and many moments since then. If I'm a privileged son of God, one to be called his, one of his children, my heavenly father, I can expect to discipline from his loving hand and I should not be discouraged or confused by that, but instead be comforted and to consider Jesus looking to him who endured far more injustice and suffering than I could ever imagine. Alexander McLaren compares this passage to a lighthouse, which is a perfect analogy. He said it gives the kind of teaching that we don't notice much when the sun is shining. Like the light that comes from a lighthouse, it doesn't really stand out very well during the day, does it? When things are going well for you, you might just read right over this passage. But when the night comes... When the storms begin to blast against you, all of a sudden this passage blazes with a light that is essential if we are to find our way through. And it certainly did for me on that day in college and has continued to do so at key moments of suffering in my Christian life. All that to say my relationship with this passage this morning is not an academic one. The truth is we don't really care much about God's discipline when he doesn't seem to be doing it. But when he does, we need the truth of these verses in a big way. We, we desperately need the instruction that we find here. The author's concern for his readers and my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would have a biblical perspective in our sufferings that we would think rightly about our difficulties in life, that we would understand and even cherish our Father's discipline. And in doing so, that we would find the strength to hold fast to Jesus to the very end. So let's start with perspective in discipline. I invite you to follow along in your outline. Let's read verses 3 and 4. We're going to cover verses 1 and 2 in a later sermon more in depth. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Okay, consider him, he says, that is consider Jesus. The author makes a comparison here. A comparison, the comparison is the suffering Jesus endured from hostile sinners against himself Versus the struggle that his readers are enduring. Now, we obviously struggle with our own sin. Jesus never did. Also, we're never completely innocent. Jesus always was. So, the primary struggle with sin the author is referring to here is 
our struggle against sin coming from other sinners or external forces. That kind of sinful hostility which Jesus did endure and at a far greater level, of course, than us. So this is primarily not a struggle against personal failure, but struggle against adversaries and those who do evil against you. The author knows that his audience has suffered hostility against them, injustice at the hand, hands of sinners. Some have had their, had their property stolen, we saw in chapter 10. Some have been publicly exposed to reproach, but they've not shed their blood. They're still alive. They haven't suffered as martyrs like many of the heroes and heroines he listed in the previous chapter that we just went through in the Hall of Faith. Some of who were stoned, put to death by the sword, even sawn in two. They haven't endured that. So why should we consider Jesus and his sufferings? He says, so that, that's the, this is the reason, we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The Net Bible says, think of him so you don't give up. This is about endurance. Remember the repeated warnings against apostasy in this letter, ultimately turning your back on Jesus in the gospel. No, we're to hold fast to Jesus and have enduring faith. The NLT paraphrases it this way. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up. Now when we do this, when we consider what Jesus went through at the hands of sinners, we certainly are humbled, aren't we? I mean, at how much he suffered compared to us. But that's not primarily what the author's getting at. There's something about considering Jesus' sufferings that encourages us, it strengthens us in our faith and perseverance, and there are at least two things. First, he was the son of God who suffered. This tells us suffering like this is normal for a legitimate son of God, child of God. And in God's will, Jesus, the perfect son, endured suffering for a purpose other than his own fault. So if that's true for the perfect son, it can certainly be true for us. There's never been a human being more faithful to God than Jesus, of course. Yet he suffered immensely. Therefore, faithful children of God are not exempt from brutal opposition from the world and evil forces. And this was not, I'm sorry, this was God's will for Jesus. That, and it may be God's will for us. They haven't shed blood, he says. They're still alive. As Tony Evans says, if you're still here, God isn't finished with you. So, When you enter into a trial, know that your father not only allows it, but ordains it. Matthew 10, a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the will of the father. The very hairs of our head are numbered by him. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul, it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, similar to Hebrews, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
So the path to the kingdom of God, he's saying, is through many tribulations. So you can be encouraged that you're on the right path. The path of Jesus before us. The path to the kingdom is through suffering, through difficulty. Peter says the same thing. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Jesus himself in the Gospels, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Few find it. Back in chapter 2, we read that it was fitting that he, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. It was fitting that Jesus was perfected for his role as Savior and High Priest through the means of suffering. It was fitting that Jesus endured suffering to make him the pioneer of our salvation. As Cockerell says, it was necessary for the Son to suffer such opposition that his obedience might be total and complete. Such worldly opposition is now described as God's discipline by which his sons and daughters are confirmed in the way of obedience. So there's, there's a sense in which suffering and endurance is how we're confirmed as legit sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Trials testify to the fatherly training and discipline of God for that purpose. And we must endure, not reject that character training. So that's one way we can be strengthened. By considering Jesus the perfect Son and His suffering. Hostility of the world against God's children is normal. Now, before I move on to the second reason this is encouraging, I want to guard against something pastorally, because unfortunately, like many scriptures, this one can be twisted by abusive people in order to oppress others unjustly. Brother or sister, and particularly sister, do not be manipulated by an abuser telling you that your suffering at his hand is somehow God's will for you. That's a perversion of this truth, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. The Holy Spirit is about truth, transparency, and freedom. If you're suffering unjustly at the hand of someone in some kind of authority that wants you to keep it a secret, that's not God's will. Reach out to someone, perhaps multiple people. Do not suffer in silence. Talk about it with someone because that's evil and not God's will. Now, having guarded against that abuse of that passage, let's return to a second reason we can be encouraged and strengthened by considering Jesus and his sufferings. And it's this. He is our great and perfect high priest. He intercedes for us. Okay. He understands suffering in a way no one else can. What better person to intercede for us than him? As Cockerell says, consider the magnitude of his sufferings. The opposition against himself by sinful people. Remember, he endured. He was triumphant. Jesus is and continues to be such a person who endured to the end. He's borne the full brunt of evil opposition with complete success. He's perfectly fitted to sustain you. Jesus is not a martyr, but a savior and a high priest seated at the right hand of God, and he's there for you. Consider him in that way. 
Now, the author transitions from focusing on God the Son to thinking about our relationship now to God as our Father. Privilege in discipline. Let's read together, starting at verse eight, uh, 5 through verse 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Okay, this exhortation the, the author references here is from Proverbs chapter 3, which this Hebrew audience would have known very well. Have you forgotten the proverb, he says? The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, this concept of sonship, of course, applies both to male and female Christians. But he's saying, don't draw the wrong conclusion from your trials. It's easy for us to think that God loves me when things are going well. And when things are not going well, God's angry with me. Or God has forgotten me. Or he has betrayed me. The author emphatically rejects that idea. Frankly, that kind of thinking is a lie you hear today out of the false prosperity gospel. Many false teachers today would have you believe that easy circumstances always indicate God's favor. Difficult circumstances indicate God's disfavor. What a falsehood. And such a biblically ignorant concept. If that were true, think about what that would mean. The Apostle Paul, Peter, basically all the early disciples, Jesus himself must have been really out of favor with God because they had incredibly difficult circumstances. This false teaching is as ridiculous as it is dangerous. Hardships are the discipline from our Heavenly Father training us as his children. The privilege of being his child is manifest in his loving discipline. Parents do not have this kind of special love for other children and discipline them. Only their own children. We are God's children. He loves us. Philip says this, God's own heart is bound up with us that we are the apple of his eye. Surely this ought to be the most welcome of news, even if it is coupled with the hardships which God is raising us as his own. Nowhere in the Old Testament are God's people so clearly called his children as this passage in Proverbs 3. It's only unloved children who are not disciplined. Many of the unfortunate young adults in juvenile detention centers or prisons did not have parents who cared enough to set boundaries for them and lovingly discipline and train them. A true son who's loved by a father is disciplined. It's a privilege. A true son who's loved by our Heavenly Father is also disciplined. A greater privilege. Not everyone's a child of God. I know you hear in the culture, hey, we're all God's children. And of course, we're all created in the image of God. We have that in common with everyone. And that's really important. But that's not the same as being in the family of God. And being a child of God is a special privilege only for believers. John 1.12, only those who receive him, that is Jesus, to them he gives the right to be called the children of God. Consider that the eternal son 
became a man to share his brotherhood with us believers, to unite him to to unite us to himself as our elder brother. Think about this. When you see when you read the gospels, you see the Lord Jesus sowing such great trust in the Father, doesn't he? Always trusting the Father. Well, part of being conformed to the likeness of Christ is an increased trust in the Father, like Jesus had on earth. As we're transformed and growing in maturity as children of God, we grow in increased trust and reliance and faith on our Heavenly Father, like Jesus. And discipline does that. First Peter, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your trust in the Father, more precious than gold, that's how valuable it is to him, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our Father cherishes that increased trust and dependence on him during these trials. That is more precious to him than gold. Listen to J.I. Packer. This is the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another. It is to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. God wants us to feel that our way through this life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn thankfully to lean more on him. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of our self-confidence to trust in himself, end quote. So from the Lord's standpoint, suffering and persecution is discipline, which is a sign of sonship. This is really important. It's not punishment, but correction and education in being a son. It's really important to remember that punishment for our sin as believers was poured out on Christ on the cross. It's paid for. Okay, that's how we're able, frankly, to be adopted as his children. So you never want to imagine God angry with you or meeting out punishment on you. Suffering's not transactional, like judgment. You did this, so you pay this. That was taken care of at Calvary. God, this is not God as your judge. Rather, this is God as your father. He's training you for godliness. And that training certainly includes discipline for sin, but it can also be training to wean you away from potential sin or to prevent sin. This is all a part, of, it's part of God's training to grow us in righteousness. That's why we can be encouraged by suffering, because his training is from a place of love as our Heavenly Father. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, our dependence on God, produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So suffering, trials, persecution, these are not signs of God's disfavor or sign that he's abandoning you or ignoring you. Rather, it is evidence that you are his true child. Again, from Proverbs 3, for the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. Now, this doesn't mean it's not painful, as earthly discipline from a loved one can be, right? But it's a sign of his favor and acceptance. The 
verse 7 in the Greek is ambiguous. You could render it a, a few different ways in the English. The ESV, which, which we read, says it is for discipline that you have to endure. Looking at other translations, I think it's better to render this when it's more aligned with the thrust of Hebrews in the context of the letter to say it this way. Endure suffering as discipline. Okay, running the race to the end requires discipline that entails hardship and suffering. We need to endure it. Now, it may be consequences for wrongdoing, but not always. What it always is, is training toward maturity, instruction, correction. I remember when my oldest child was still crawling, we had a, a fireplace in, in, installed. And inevitably, she would crawl toward the fireplace and, and want to reach out and touch the metal. And I would swat her hand as she reached out. I wasn't punishing her. She didn't do anything morally wrong. But it was formative training. Touching that will hurt you more than this. Okay, it, it's preventative and training. God uses our struggles and, and suffering, whether innocent or deserved, to train us in holiness. Now, in verse 8... He says, if you're not disciplined, you're illegitimate children. Now, he's not, the author's not disparaging those born outside of marriage. What he's doing here is drawing on an image, as the NIV cultural commentary says, in their culture. Uh, many of the nobility in Roman culture had illegitimate sons. Okay? They were financially supported, but left to themselves without discipline. But not the son of the nobleman's legal wife, who would carry the father's name and inherit the estate. That son was subjected to training. So the author is using that illustration from their culture to say, you're a legitimate son. You carry the name. You will inherit the estate because you're disciplined. J.C. Ryle says this, by affliction, God teaches us many precious lessons without it, which without it we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. Now let's consider more closely per the purpose in discipline. Let's read verses 9 through 11. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the author makes a comparison by way of argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay, even our earthly fathers disciplined us because they loved us, okay? And just like childhood discipline, where it's appropriate to respond with respect and submission, even more so with our Heavenly Father, whose discipline is perfect. Our earthly Father's discipline, while it may have been very good, is imperfect. We often make mistakes, sometimes grave mistakes. We fathers get it wrong sometimes and need to apologize when needed. Our Heavenly Father never gets it wrong. Our earthly fathers may have done the best they could, but they were not perfect. But at their best, they did things for the good of the child. Both instruction, correction, or training for the good of the child. Any father who loves their child is burdened that they grow in maturity, right? 
I've made many mistakes as a father, some of which I needed to apologize to my children. Early earthly fathers are not free from mistakes in their discipline. I was blessed to have a great earthly father growing up, still am blessed. He was not perfect. When I was in junior high, <laughs> I started playing the trombone in band. It wasn't my favorite thing to do. And we joke about it now, but there were times when he was frustrated with me. I can't imagine why, but he was frustrated with me and said, go upstairs and practice your trombone. <laughs> and sometimes he would even add, I don't mean to use it as a punishment. Narrator, but that's basically what it was. <laughs> I don't think there's any wonder why I didn't fall in love with band and why I've never made my kids play an instrument, though I'm delighted that one does. Okay? But unlike my father or my own parenting or any human parents, all of whom make mistakes, God's fatherhood and discipline is perfect. We're affected by passion and prejudice. Our Heavenly Father is not. I want you to consider with me for a moment. God's perfection in his parenting. He never gets it wrong. His method is never flawed. His timing is never off. He never misunderstands the situation. He never should have listened better to us to get the full picture. He never misreads the circumstances. He never neglects to act when perfectly appropriate. He never misses an early sign of some character flaw and wishes he could go back and handle something differently. He never overcorrects or overcompensates. He knows exactly what you need and when and how. He always works perfectly in your discipline. Brother or sister, especially if you're suffering right now, I want you to listen to something really, really important. Our Heavenly Father may hurt you, but He will never harm you because He loves you. And His discipline is always perfect. That's why we should always submit to him. Look at the goal of his discipline, verse 10, that we may share in his holiness. I mean, that holiness is a lofty goal. We can expect the path to be hard, right? The path to that end result of holiness, or stated differently in verse 11, the fruit of righteousness. The path there is difficult. For the moment, verse 11, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But the focus is on the goal which comes later. Think of the discipline to compete in athletics, all the work, the gym, the running, the exercises, the repetitive pain. It's all for the goal. You don't expect to like it at the time. The benefits are never evident when you're undergoing the discipline. Sometimes you might hear athletes during a practice Say to their coach doing, when they're doing a drill for the hundredth time, are you trying to kill me? That's what it feels like. Likewise, we can think of our Heavenly Father when we're undergoing discipline. Are you trying to kill me? But in both cases, the pain is not meant for your destruction, but for you to reach the goal. And with our Father in Heaven, that goal is sharing His holiness and life, eternal life, with us. It's given 
so that, verse 9, we may be subject to the Father and live. The former head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, Tom Landry, said this, The job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. Well, a true believer wants to be transformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be. So in the case of our discipline, we humbly receive it even though we don't like it. And we grow in holiness so that we might be who God wants us to be. We keep our eyes on the goal. And this great purpose, in that great purpose, we're following Jesus. Jesus endured by looking to the joy that lay ahead, verse 2. But the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The path for the Son of God was suffering to glory. If we're his two children, if he's our elder brother, that will be our path too, suffering to glory. And we need to persevere even when we cannot see the benefit right away. Listen to Spurgeon, as eloquent as ever. Many believers are deeply grieved because they do not at once feel they have profited by their afflictions. But one does not expect to see apples or plums in a tree that was planted a week ago. Only little children put their seeds into the flower garden and then expect to see them grow into plants within an hour. Sometimes the good of our troubles may not come to us for years afterwards. When perhaps getting into a somewhat similar experience, we are helped to bear it by the remembrance of having endured the like 10 or even 20 years ago. Now, within this ultimate purpose, we can perhaps break down further purposes of our discipline into more specific categories. These are not exhaustive, but just some of what we see in the scripture. James Moffat said this, to endure rightly we must endure intelligently. Meaning, if you're informed by what Scripture says regarding discipline, if you have intelligent biblical understanding of these categories, it will help you endure. You know, the author uses athletic imagery uh, throughout this chapter, running with endurance, verse 1. In that vein, I think of basketball practice. You might have to run laps as a consequence for running the, the play wrong in practice. Run, you run laps. But sometimes you run laps to be in better shape for the next game. Okay? Discipline involves both corrective and preventative or preparation. Okay, sometimes we're disciplined because we're sinning. This is corrective discipline. Think of David after Bathsheba and Uriah, the absolute disaster that befell his household, Absalom, Amnon, Ahithophel. Listen to a couple verses in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. (laughs) It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So that's corrective discipline. But sometimes discipline is preventative. Think of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So we're told that this particular suffering that the apostle mentions and endures was to prevent him from sinning. It was training measure that he would not become conceited. Okay, so... In our case, maybe we'll require less corrective 
discipline in the future because of the preventative discipline we received earlier. Kent Hughes illustrates this with a principle in forestry. I didn't know this. But when small trees are cleared away, sometimes larger trees come down because they were being shielded from nature's assaults and never developed the strength to stand alone. Just so, God regularly allows his children hardships to strengthen us and to prevent us from falling. So, preventative. Another purpose in discipline might be education. When we consider the suffering of Job, this was neither punishment nor prevention, it would appear, but education about knowing God. At the end of the book, chapter 42, he says, Now my eyes have seen you. He had never known God in all his majesty, independence, and sovereignty as he did then. Now, he didn't understand anything more about why he suffered, but he did understand God's sovereignty and who he was and his goodness, and that was enough for him. This is a key biblical principle in suffering we can learn from Job. We don't need to know all the details about the why as long as we know the who. It's not always clear which is which in terms of these categories, admittedly, from God. But ultimately, it doesn't matter because he's trustworthy as a father. That's what we see. Here's the main point stated by Michael Kruger. Don't ignore the difficult things in your life as if they were random. Not a hair falls from your head that God does not know about. He is intimately in control. God is using all these things in your life to train you and shape you. That's the purpose. This leads directly to perseverance in discipline. Let's read the last two verses, starting in verse 12 together. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So the author concludes, Therefore, since discipline and pain is for your good from your loving Father, for the goal of your future righteousness and holiness... Since that's true, be encouraged. The the NLT paraphrases it. Therefore, take a new grip with your tired hands. What is lame is a metaphor for emotional and spiritual fatigue within the congregation. It's an allusion to Isaiah 35, drooping hands and weak knees. In Isaiah, he was looking forward to the end of the exile. The writer of Hebrews reframes this to looking forward to the consummation of the kingdom. The kingdom has been inaugurated with Jesus But we're in the already but not yet, as we talk about so frequently. The final blessings of the kingdom in its full consummation are still future, awaiting us. Like Jesus, we need to set that joy before us to endure now. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I know you're tired, he says. But don't stop. We must endure, not reject the discipline and training from our Father. Don't let suffering choke out the plants, like in Jesus' parable of the seeds. Some started strong, died out. Some were choked by suffering. They didn't bear fruit. Don't let suffering lead to apostasy, which is what that parable is about. Walking away from the faith. Suffering isn't weird. It's not anomalous. This is a false idea, especially common in America, where it's been so easy for so long to be a Christian. That's not normal. 
historically or even geographically today. Now it's getting a little tougher. Okay, you're going against the grain, maybe for the first time significantly, especially in the area of gender, sexuality. This is too much for some professing Christians. More and more leaving the faith, leaving the church. Don't let that happen to you, Hebrews is saying, and don't let it happen to others. This is key. Do not let what is lame be put out of joint, but rather healed. Those who are struggling, come together as a church. Don't let them walk away from the faith. Don't let what is lame be put out of joint, rather healed, rather encouraged, rather on the path of endurance. Finish the race, verse 1. Run with endurance the race set before us. Get your second wind. Make straight paths. Stay obedient. Stay focused on the goal. The only way to finish the race successfully is to heal the spiritual injuries of the past and avoid those pitfalls in the future. We are prone to apostasy when we're discouraged. This is why forsaking of the meeting together was such a big deal back in chapter 10, and it's a big deal for us today. We cannot go it alone. We need to be in fellowship and help each other run the race together. O'Brien says this, the appeal to endure and press on to the goal is for the whole community, while there is a particular concern for its weakest members. Believers have a responsibility to care for one another. This isn't just the pastors. And encourage each other to persevere. The prospect of healing for the weak is encouragement for all. This is God's discipline and training. Don't misunderstand his love for you as his child. Hold fast to Jesus. I'll close with one of my heroes in the faith, Joni Erickson. Many of you know her story. When she was 17 years old, she was injured in a diving accident that left her a quadriplegic. No movement in her arms and legs for over 50 years now. A kind of suffering I know nothing about. I'll give the last word to her. One day during a long flight home, I could not get comfortable in the airline seat. My corset was digging into me, and no matter what my husband did, my blood pressure continued to spike, and my forehead kept sweating, signs that I am in pain. Normally, it would have been enough to drive me to pray, but not this time. I was fed up with my disability, which is a nice way of saying I was fed up with God's control of the situation. My thoughts were sour, and I was not about to ask for my Bible out of my backpack. Instead, I, tr- I tried to get my mind off my pain by watching the in-flight movie. Halfway through, I thought, this is the stupidest film. Why am I watching it? That night after the pain subsided, my first thought was this. That wasn't like me. I'm normally not like that. But the whisper of the Holy Spirit replied, that is you. You are like that. Suffering always tests us, she says. Examining and sifting us, asking, who are you really? Normally, we're not faced all the time with how self-focused we are or how sour and peevish our attitude can be. We think we're doing pretty well, but suffering strips off that veneer and shows us our true colors. Affliction does not teach you about yourself from a textbook. It teaches you from experience. It will always show you what you love, she says, either the God of all comfort or the comfort that can become your God. She she writes elsewhere that she wants to stand next to Jesus in heaven. 
She writes elsewhere that she wants to stand next to Jesus in heaven on her new legs in her perfect glorified body holding his nail-pierced hands and thank him for her wheelchair. And he know I will mean it, she says, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And she'll tell him that the weaker she was in that thing, the harder she leaned on him. And the harder she leaned on him, the stronger she discovered him to be. And that it would never have happened had he not given her the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And she says, I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because he will. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, you're such a faithful, good Father. We thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. Lord, I continue to pray here for those who are struggling, suffering, facing adversaries of various kinds, whether it's others and their evil against them, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual harm. Lord, I pray that you would heal them. I pray that you would help them to see that you, they are a true child of God and that you're training them. Help them to see your love in its clearest form as we see the Son of God on the cross. May we live as faithful children, enduring suffering as discipline for Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen. Amen.